Hello and welcome to another edition of Dig Deep, the podcast about sport, faith, and life. I am Brian Bolt, kinesiology professor and men's golf coach at Calvin College. And I'm Chad Carlson, kinesiology professor and director of general education at Hope College. And we are coming to you again from the comfortable chairs of the audio studio of Our Daily Bread, the ministry that works around the world to improve your and my relationship with God. And actually, there's heat in here today. Uh, we're pretty excited about that. What do you think, Chad? Wow, yes, it's a nice counterbalance to the snow outside. How great. Yeah, no question. It has been cold and the snow has arrived. Time to get your skis out. Time to do some of that uh, shoveling that is so dangerous. Um, yeah, actually, my son uh, has a job shoveling before school. He's a, a senior in high school, and one of his friends that shovels with him was unavailable. So dad <laughs> got up at 4 a.m. to shovel this week, and so if I sound a little tired, I am. This is like the modern equivalent of a paper route, right, where dad, dad has to help out. That's exactly right. He gets the job and the money, and I do the work. That's how it works. Sounds You'll like, know when your kids get a little older. Sounds like a, a, something I want to avoid. Well, maybe I can't. Good luck with maybe that. Can't. Yeah. All yeah. right. <laughs> well, we're really excited. We don't want to wait too long, but we're really excited about the uh, guests that we have today. So I want to go ahead and introduce her, and then we'll hear a little bit more about her and her life. With us today is Sister Rita Claire Yoches, formerly Ann Yoches. Uh, she is, well, actually, she has a title way better than our titles. You bet it is. It, it's an awesome title. She is called, at least at least in one publication, the football nun. And I don't know of any other football nun. That's fantastic. Uh, R- Sister Rita Claire, thank you for coming on the show. You're welcome. It's good to be here. So we don't know a lot about just you. Uh, we know only about the sort of n- the football nun part of you, and we'll get to that. But could you just give us a little history on uh, where you grew up? Um, and kind of where you are now. Yeah, I grew up in um, Dearborn Heights, Michigan, right outside of Detroit, and um, have an older sister and a younger brother, and my dad was always um, my coach in all my sports, and my mom was always my biggest cheerleader, and we grew up um, in the faith, Catholic faith. We went to Catholic school uh, all 12 years and um, went to church together as a family every Sunday. We didn't really um, talk about God too much in the home. It was just kind Mm -hmm. of like... A way of life, but um, yeah, it's not like we necessarily prayed together much, especially because we were all running in every different direction, playing every different sport um, at night in the evenings. Um, but yeah, just um, had a great time playing every sport you can imagine under the sun uh, as a kid, basketball, softball, soccer, volleyball, golf, and um, yeah, anything I could get my hands on. <laughs> and um, Uh, We won two state championships in high school um, in basketball at Divine Child, Mm -hmm. and um, I earned a full-ride scholarship to play basketball at the University of Detroit Mercy. Um, Also played a lot of AAU basketball on on the national level, and um, yeah, I got my degree in sports medicine, so uh, kinesiology professor, (laughs) love that stuff. There you go. Um, So I was an athletic trainer and strength and conditioning coach for um, nine years before I became a religious sister. And um, and it's at that time after college, um, I went to the University of Notre Dame to be a strength and conditioning coach right after graduating. Um, And that's when I heard about 
tryouts for women's professional football and decided I should probably try that out. <laughs> and um, then I moved back home to Detroit to open up a training facility for athletes where we did speed and agility training. Um, and I played for the Detroit team for five more years. Um, so, Right. So the Detroit demolition, I'm going to jump in right there. There's so much fun stuff that's uh, in that story. Thanks very much for that quick summary. And then we'll yeah. get to kind of where you are now. So the Detroit demolition no longer... Uh, in existence. Can you tell us a little bit about that team? Yeah, it was uh, 70 women from all different backgrounds, um, economically, faith, uh, morals, beliefs, and, you know, we were from all over the state, and we even had some girls from Canada on our team, and so women I would have never met and never been friends with unless it was for football, and just, I was coached by Tony Blankenship, who played at University of Michigan, and he mm -hmm. was one of the best coaches I've ever had in my life, and he just somehow knew how to bring all of us women together and teach us a sport that none of us had ever played before, um, to the point where we won four national championships, and, you know, it was evil, it was even playing ground, because nobody in, across the nation had ever played before, so um, to be able to do that with those women... It's football. I mean, everyone's so important. You need the big girls, you need the little girls, the fast girls, the tall tall girls. So it was so neat to see kind of why men talk about this sport and love this sport so much. It's something I never understood because I never played. But when you're working like that hard with 11 people to get across the goal line and every movement matters, um, it just bonds you. Um, and then there's just a, an excitement and a power behind you know each play too because of that. So can you describe to us, you know, uh, male football is, is pretty well known. Female football is, is less well known. What, are there major differences between the two? I mean, you're probably, you're running the same, similar plays probably. Coach Blankenship, who you know, grew up and was a large part of, of football culture in, in the state of Michigan. Um, needless, you know, needless to say, that was, that was what he knew. So are there major differences between the female game and the male game? Yeah, no, I mean, we played NFL rules. The only difference was we had a smaller ball because our hands are smaller. Um, but, yeah, definitely all of our plays and, and setup was the same, and all of our coaches were men, and they had only, you know, played and coached men. And so, yeah, everything was the same. I'd say the only difference is maybe our quarterbacks couldn't throw as far, but um, but our quarterback was pretty pretty sweet. She played softball at Western Michigan and was a really, really good athlete. So, But, yeah, I'd say maybe maybe the long ball the Hail Mary pass wasn't uh, as uh, easy in our game, maybe. <laughs> yeah, pun intended there. Yeah, so <laughs> outstanding. Um, so when I think about this uh, football experiment, because ultimately it didn't last, at least in, in here in Detroit, 70 women. Was it hard to get people to come, hard to talk people into trying this, or was it really easy, everybody just waiting for it? Oh, yeah. I mean, people just showed up for the tryouts out of the woodworks. Um, and, and, and fans came, too, because they had never seen women play football. So I only had probably about 100 fans at my college basketball games. But with the Detroit Demolition, we'd have between 1,000 and 2,000 people coming to our games, um, which was exciting and fun. Um, yeah. But, yeah, definitely um, anybody and everybody came out. I think some women who were too big to play other sports got excited because there was finally a sport for them. And then some other women who had been football fans their whole life and um, kind of had played flag or, you know, fantasy football and been to watch, you know, super into the NFL. A lot of them came. I mean, I knew nothing about the game, but a lot of these women knew a lot about football. So you have this quite conventional 
childhood or upbringing that you ex- described to us, playing a lot of sports, you know, a brother and sister, family that's into sports. Um, you follow, at least from a kinesiology perspective, a pretty conventional professional career after graduation where you're getting into strength coaching. That's that's nothing out of the norm. And then all of a sudden, it changes. It seems like it changes to football. That's much less conventional in the decision you've made since then. But can you talk us through what was it like to to make this decision to enter football when you had such a robust sport background to begin with anyway? It was definitely against all odds. I mean, all my friends and family did think I was a little bit crazy, and um, they were just like, what are you doing? And um, and it was crazy. I was working a full-time job, and to dedicate all of my free time after work, rushing around to get to practice, and um, and traveling all weekend on the, for the games, and playing a sport I had never played, and with you know some some aggressive uh, people <laughs> so yeah a lot of people thought i was completely nuts but i ju- i just thought nothing of it it just seemed right and um and then as soon as i got there like it seemed right to go to the tryout i had always wanted to be on the show american gladiators and that never happened so i figured this was the next best so thing close. <laughs> so exactly. so um once i got there and the the coaches started teaching us um, about the game and we got to put on the pads and the helmets and start hitting it just um, yeah it was a no brainer <laughs> it was super fun so what people might not know if they have not played football is how technical it is how much mm-hmm. there is to learn mm-hmm. often people think that the big barrier in football is that you just run into people and ultimately see who can bang each other the hardest but it's mm-hmm. quite technical how did you take to that aspect of the game it, it was a lot to um, to learn the to learn the game and then learn the plays and to learn the rules. I mean, it was a lot all at once. Um, again, like I said, while having a full-time job, and then that next year I moved. The first year I played for the South Bend Golden Hawks, um, and so then that next year I moved to Detroit, and I had to her- learn a whole new system of plays and a whole new way of, of doing things. And so it, it, I did definitely did learn how much um, goes into um, yeah, the system of football. <laughs> so did you have uh, a female, I don't know, a female basketball coach at Detroit Mercy or a male? I had female both uh, four years. There was two different females, yeah. And could you compare the coaching styles um, between your basketball experience and your football experience? I don't think there's anything to compare to Tony Blankenship. I mean, he is a strong, <laughs> loud man, but you felt like you were at... Uh, a Pentecostal or Baptist church when he was coaching you because that's <laughs> he how was he bringing coached. it. And his dad, his dad was a preacher, and so um, you know he tried to tame his tongue at times, but it didn't do so well all the time. But but he fired us up so well, and um, yeah, just taught us the game. And but he brought in you know he brought in scriptures and he brought in the moral teachings and just yeah just fi- fired us up in that sense. And and he also just you know, made us leave everything aside because all of us were bringing so much different things from life to the practice each night. And uh, he helped us, like, lay that all aside, too. So, so one of those things, you mentioned you, you would go to football after work. So this was not mm-hmm. a full-time job for you. What were you doing otherwise? Uh, I worked at the Total Performance Training Center in, in Wixom, Michigan, so mm-hmm. right outside of Detroit. Um, as a, I basically ran a training facility for athletes, so... Um, Okay. We did speed and agility and weight training for them and so team you, training you were and plyometrics. Still, so. You were still doing some of that, uh, uh, some personal training then and some, some team athlete uh, elite level training mm-hmm. while playing football, which seems 
seems like it works well. I can imagine that maybe some some athletes on your team maybe didn't have the luxury of, of working in sort of the industry that you were doing with football as well. But yeah, I, and they didn't keep themselves in always as good a shape as they could have, but I had the luxury of having that at work, so yeah. That is a luxury, isn't it? That is a yeah. luxury. And I wonder now, your team had such success with four national titles in, in four years that you played in, in Detroit. I mean, unbelievable success, especially in a city that, that, that hasn't had a ton of success. Ouch, come yeah, on. I know. That, I knew I was going to get there lot, at some point yeah. in time. But, but Can we it, talk about Tiger and all Phil? De, all, Detroit, <laughs> all Detroit teams have had their, their moments of, of glory, at least outside the line. So the demolition uh, win four national titles. What, what was it that worked? What was it that sparked you guys to such success? Honestly, I think it was coaching, but also the we had a wide range of a pull because we were such a big city that we could pull um, a lot of athletes into it, which obviously like my South Bend Golden Hawks team just had a tiny little <laughs> pool mm, of women from yeah, South right. Bend, Indiana. Um, so I think it was a combination of the city, but then really the coaching um, because there was really no no difference between us and the Atlanta team or the Washington, D.C. team, and we still were able to be that successful. We're speaking to Sister Rita Claire Yoches, uh, formerly a player for the Detroit Demolition. Were you ever on the Detroit Danger? I really, I looked it up. It seemed like a really cool name, too. So I was on the South Bend Golden Hawks the year that they were the Detroit Danger, and then when I came up to Detroit and moved back home, we switched over to the Demolition. Mm-hmm. And she has given us a little bit of a history of her time with that very successful football team, women's all-women's football team. The coaches were male. And then a significant life change, not directly on the heels, but a significant life change after that. Can we start going into that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, so when I was 23, I kind of had a reversion uh, back to just understanding the depth of my faith and um, why I believed what I believed. Um, and so uh, I, heard a, I heard a sermon at church, and it just convicted me to confess my sins and come clean and change my life. I started reading the Bible every night before I went to bed, started um, going to the chapel to pray every day, and um, yeah, I just couldn't get enough of Jesus. And um, it was bizarre because it was, it was a month after my grandma, Rita Claire, had died that all this stuff started happening, and I, I felt like I was becoming grandma and liking it, where before Grandma, like, prayed so much, and I thought she was crazy. I was like, who would ever want to pray that much? And then after she died, I just felt like all this grace came onto me, and I started becoming like her, which is why I eventually took her name when I became a religious sister. But, yeah, my life just, I was I was a big, um, with football, I mean, we felt like we were invincible. I had a good job. I had great friends, loved my life, and I partied a lot, and so... My life was, you know, kind of in the gutter spiritually, and um, once this spiritual awakening happened, um, I just felt like, you know, I was I was spiraling back upward instead of into a downward hole, and um, I wasn't able to, like, stop my behaviors, you know, cold turkey right away, but slowly um, I, I was able to, to change and to just let go of the past and let go of um, the way I was living and partying and those types of friends and stuff, and... Um, and it was at that time my mom and I went to Italy um, on a pilgrimage, and we were in Assisi, Italy, when um, I saw some poor Claire nuns walking into a monastery, and I just heard God in my heart. I heard him say, you should do this, you could do this. 
and at the time I was playing football, I was still one foot in the bar, one foot in the church, and I was like, God, no way, you've got the wrong person. I didn't know anyone still became nuns. I don't know anyone who has become a nun, and you're crazy. And so I tried to ignore it, tried to run away from it, pretend like it didn't happen. But every night when I went to prayer, I just had this tugging on my heart, you know, you have a calling, you have a vocation. And so um, it just, yeah, it wouldn't go away. And so finally I went to go visit a convent in Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, just to try to get it off of my mind and make sure I heard the Lord wrong. But when I went there, um, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was beautiful, and I told the Lord, okay, I'm, I'm open to marriage, and I'm also open to religious life, whichever one you want to call me to. And, um, yeah, it was the start of a, a surrendering, um, but that was in 2004, and I didn't enter religious life until 2009. So um, it, was a, it was a slow turning, but the Lord knew how much time I needed. <laughs> it was a process, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a priest had told me, you'll never know if you're supposed to marry a guy unless you go on a first date with them. You'll never know if you're supposed to become a sister and enter a convent unless you go visit a convent. If you like it, go visit it a second time. If you like the guy, go on a second date. And so I was like, okay, I'm just oh, going to go visit the place. <laughs> yep, yep. And so, um, yeah, after about six months of that, I just knew I was supposed to be a sister, so I surrendered to the Lord in my heart, you know, I'll do this. Um, but then two months later, I met a guy, and I was like, oh, okay, the Lord just wanted me to surrender in my heart, and then he would give me what I wanted, which was a man. And so <laughs> I started dating this young man, but he was very into his faith and not afraid to proclaim it. And it was, it was very good for me, because up until then, I had pretty much kept my faith private. And, um, yeah, I was afraid to, to proclaim it. And so, um, yeah, through his inspiration, you know, I was able to just give myself more over to the Lord and let go of more behaviors. And he also was um, open to praise and worship and all of that, and so I got introduced to um, more of a charismatic way of praying, too, which was was really beautiful. And um, he brought me to, like, a Christian concert, and after that concert you could get prayed over. I didn't even know what getting prayed over was, but I went because he went, and um and my prayer in my heart was, Lord, am I supposed to marry you or am I supposed to marry this young man? And the women who were praying over me, they didn't know what my prayer was in my heart, but they read me Isaiah chapter 62, which says, As a young man marries a virgin, so shall your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And immediately I thought, oh, I'm supposed to marry this guy. He's my builder because his name's Bob, and we always call him Bob the Builder because he's in construction. <laughs> and, uh, That's excellent the, scriptural interpretation. Yeah, and so, but that scripture was so beautiful. It was the most beautiful scripture I'd ever heard. I went back and reread Isaiah 62 that night, and when I saw it was a capital B, your builder, your maker, your creator, shall marry I was like, okay, I'm still mm. supposed to become a nun. I just, I knew what it meant for me. I mean, anybody else could have read that passage, and it may not have hit them like it hit me, but I knew what the Lord was saying to me. Um, but I did what every girl would do, and I just didn't tell anyone, and I kept dating him for a whole other year because I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to be different. I didn't want um, to have to give up everything. But in that year, I realized, like, I wasn't satisfied. I wasn't happy. There was more, and the Lord was calling me to more, and, and I was called to be given to the whole world. Um, and so... A year later, we go back to another uh, Christian concert at Franciscan University in Steubenville, and that time when I got prayed over, I felt the Holy Spirit come inside of me, and up until then, I couldn't have really told you who or what the Holy Spirit was, and I started crying, I started breathing really heavy, and uh, 
The next thing is I felt God the Father stick his hand in my chest and pull out all of my past sins and impurities that I was holding on to and using as a roadblock of why I couldn't become a sister. There's no way I could do this. And he, I knew I had been forgiven of them, but I was still holding on to them, and he just wanted to show me, like, they're gone. I'm ripping them out of you. And it was physically painful and exhausting, but I knew it was God touching me, and so um, I didn't want it to end at the same time. And after that, I saw an image in prayer of God wrapping me in this white, fluffy blanket, and the girls praying over me said, the Lord wraps you in his blanket. And I was like, I know, I just saw that. And I had never had a prayer experience like this before. And um, the next thing is I dropped down to my knees because I couldn't stand any longer. And I saw a bride of Christ, and I saw the Lord walking towards her. And uh, the bride of Christ was wearing a long white veil, a long white um, cape, and a crown of, crown of roses on her head. And, um, and I just knew. I'm like, okay, here it comes. He's about to ask me to marry him. And the girls praying over me said, the Lord wants you to know that he is yours, and he wants to know, will you be his? And I just, yeah, surrendered at that moment. I was like, who can say no to God at this moment? And so um, immediately I was excited. He had picked me to be his bride. But then right after that, I was like, why me? Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to give up everything? And then right after that, I just felt unworthy. There's no way I'm worthy to be Christ's bride. And the girls, again, had no idea what I was feeling. But they said to me, you know, Lord, I am not worthy but only say the words and I shall be healed. And I was like, okay, Lord, you've healed me. I'm worthy. I can do this. And uh, I, I just laid on the ground crying my eyes out because I didn't want my life to go on because I, was, I knew I was going to have to go home and tell everybody how much I love Jesus and quit my job and sell my house and give up my dog and sell my jet skis and tell the football teammates that I was going mm-hmm. to become a nun. And, and so I just kind of wanted my life to end at that moment, but I knew I had to get up and, and keep moving. And so I broke up with the young man I was dating that night and just um, dove 100% looking into religious life. So what, no doubt that everyone that you told of this decision, so there's this, this, uh, this, this moment that you described that's this beautiful moment, but also sort of a process that you talked about that didn't just occur through one moment, even if that was the culmination of it. So you've got this process, this time, mm-hmm. and you no doubt shared your, uh, your, 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 not a change of heart, but you shared your decision with so many people, and probably the reactions were different um, from different from different people that may have known you uh, better or worse. Can you describe some of the maybe more interesting responses that you yeah, received? They were all pretty bad. Um, <laughs> my friends felt like thought like I was dying of cancer, you know, in a sense of hmm. they would never see me again, and and I was dying to this world and to them. So they were very um, sad and didn't really understand it. And I understood because I didn't understand it until I started looking into it because of the call I received. Um, My family was very surprised, but also very supportive at the same time. Um, But it Mm -hmm. definitely caught them off guard. And um, football teammates and all the guys I worked with in the weight room and everything, um, most of those people either were speechless and their jaw was on the ground or a swear word came out of their mouth. (laughs) And I was like, thank you. Thank you for your support. This is great. (laughs) And then some people definitely tried to convince me not to do it, Mm. um, telling me I'd be miserable and unhappy and all that stuff. Um, So, you know, out of the goodness of their heart, they were trying to help me. But... um, yeah, but, so, but the newer friends I had had through church were all very um, excited and supportive. Well, Sister Rita Claire, I just want to pause right here and thank you. 
I thought that was just the most beautifully delivered testimony I've heard in a long time. Kind of gave me chills. So mm. thank you so much for for doing that. It was so full of joy. I think you were the life of the party back then, mm-hmm. and I think you still are. <laughs> I can hear that in your voice. Um, Absolutely. There's a great deal of joy there. And what I loved about it is just the different ways that God spoke to you uh, mm-hmm. through Scripture and through friends and through people praying over you and through a vision Mm-hmm. And the Holy Spirit coming into your life and just unfolding things for you. And what makes it real is that it wasn't easy to take. It was mm-hmm. really uh, an authentic uh, explanation of how we hear God's voice. And it's just difficult for us to to know all the time where he's taking us. But mm-hmm. you hung right in there. And that was uh, it was just compelling. So I wanted to thank you for that. Um, and I yeah. think our listeners are going to love it. Um, a question for you now as you as you have really done a uh, monumental switch in the regular activities of life, right? Mm -hmm. You move from one thing to uh, the next, and that next thing is very different than before. Can you tell us about life in a convent? Can you tell us about life in, uh, you know, away from what would be the world? Yeah, yeah. Um, we rise at 5 a.m. and um, do an hour of silent meditation prayer uh, from 5.30 to 6.30 every morning. And then we pray the Psalms from 6.30 to 7 a.m. And then we have church every day after that. And then our day, our work day is from, you know, 9 to noon. Um, whatever our ministry is, at the beginning you're studying. Um, for the first eight years you're in formation. So you may be having class um, and you're at, you're at the monastery during those early years, too, so there's a lot of cooking, cleaning, and laundry, which um, is hard for a lot of us who um, didn't either grow up that way or didn't come from an environment that we were doing that a lot. And, and also, you're living with um, 40 women, and a lot of us come from the world where we're either living on our own and it's very individualistic or... Um, yeah, you're just not used to sharing everything. And Nuns so, don't argue um, with each other, right? They're, it's all... They're all happy all the time. Right? <laughs> we we ask forgiveness uh, every night at night prayer, <laughs> which keeps which keeps us sane. And we also have um, hours of silence, which helps us too. <laughs> prayer and silence. I'm going to write that down. I, I think that might help everybody. Yeah. That's a good plan. Yep. Um, and so yeah, we are my my particular Franciscan community. We do a lot of work with the poor, um, the sick, and the unevangelized, so we'll work with college um, students and then also giving, you know, retreats or talks. So that might be your ministry, but we always come back and pray, usually um, praise and worship or a rosary at noon, and then we go back and work from 1.30 to 4.30, and then we have another hour of prayer from 5 to 6, um, some silence and then some praying of the psalms. And then we have dinner together, dishes together, and then at night we either... Um, recreate or um, study or have some free time before we pray night prayer. Um, and so, yeah, it's, you know, no TV, no cell phones, no, it, it's a it's a shocker to um, a lot of us. It's kind of like a detox. <laughs> um, but you're surrounded by people. You're surrounded by people who want to live the way you want to live in your um it's just like I kind of felt like when I was in the world, I was swimming upstream, and when I got into the convent, it was like I was floating in a tube on a lazy river because I was surrounded by people who wanted to live the way I wanted to live, and I didn't have to like fight the world anymore in a sense um, 
with that. So it was very inspiring and very beautiful. And my life here is obviously a little different because I'm doing college campus ministry, so we have late nights um, with the students and different programs at night, and so... And then a lot of retreats on the weekend and stuff like that. So our schedule is a little different than the mother house schedule. So when you were in, in the mother house, this, this description you gave, it might be shallow of me to ask about this one particular thing, but uh, and it's the recreation. This is, after all, a podcast on sport, faith, and life. So um, this recreation time that you, you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, when I, when I go into a new job or a new situation and I'm, I'm introducing myself to others and getting to know other people, one of the ways that it's easiest for me to connect with others is, is through sport, through shared experiences of either liking teams or having played similar sports. Did you run into a lot of other women at the Mother House that had played sports at the level you had? No one at the level I had, but, um, you know, I visited the convent a lot for about two years before I joined, and... Um, and we would play, you know, volleyball or volleyball mm. or basketball. And, and the Reverend Mother spiked a volleyball in my face <laughs> <laughs> one time. And I was like, I can join this community. Nice. There we go. And um, another woman who actually is from Flint, Michigan, she um, blocked one of my shots on the basketball court because she's six foot one. And so I was like, okay, I can handle these women. Uh, um, but yeah, for the most part, we usually play a two hand touch uh, football game. I ca- it's called the Turkey Ball on Thanksgiving that I started. Um, and. We play a lot of ultimate frisbee or ultimate football and a lot of soccer. So um, there's there's usually um, I usually have to hold myself back, but <laughs> it's still fun. <laughs> so Sister Rita Claire, thank you so much for all of the information at this point. Uh, I'm wondering if there's something that you want to say or something that you want to try to connect on this particular podcast, just because uh, you've had such a unique background. I'm wondering if there's something that you'd like to think, uh, sort of describe as you think about the world of sport and maybe as you view it from your life as a sister. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have experienced the freedom of um, not being, in a sense, attached or addicted to sports like I used to be because because um, we don't have TV. And, um, you know, I used to have to spend all of my Saturdays watching every football game and and all of March Madness, um, watching every single game and every single score. And and it was super hard. What's that like to be be sort of pulled away from all that? Yeah, I mean, I never experienced that. I know. I think my first year in the convent without March Madness, you know, I think I shook a couple nights. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but then it's like once you don't miss things you don't have. And and then mm. there's this also this freedom of like, you know what, like I don't have to choose whether I'm going to go to that or watch that because I don't have the option. And, and then you're free. Um, so it, it's, it is really freeing. Um, and you still hear about anything and everything that happens that's big. You know, you still hear news and different things like that. And, you know, you can watch... Uh, highlights at different times on the computer or something but it's just really freeing that none of that stuff dictates your life anymore but you um you still live life to the full you know and everything you learned in sports you um you take take with you in life and and none of that is like hidden and and people see that energy and that zeal in in your life no matter what you're doing and it's part of just you know all the all the stuff you were and are because of sports um so it's definitely still a part of me, and I love love playing different things, but um, I definitely have put more of my energy into God and prayer than um, playing. <laughs> well, that's, I don't know about Chad over there, but I'm feeling pretty convicted, and yes. that, that's just fabulous wisdom. 
there were there have been a few moments in my life when I've been pulled away from, like you said, that addictive quality of sport, that idea that we have to know what's going on or we have to follow. And once it's gone, you don't miss what you don't have. I wrote that down. Oh, and such that's such a great phrase. Isn't absolutely. Such a great phrase. Yeah. So there's so much uh, that we'd love to go into, but we're going to move now to sort of the final, to wrap this up, the yes. final round, which we'll call the speed round. Yes. And Chad and yes. I will tag team this a bit. And I think you're going to have a great time with it. So please give us the first response that you have and give us a short response. And we'll just ask you a few questions before we, uh, we close this out. Okay. Chad, why don't you take the lead? I'll start. First question. Are you ready? Yes. You are ready. You sure? Yeah. Okay, second. Okay, third question. Uh, which one, which of these two options produces a better feeling for you, uh, throwing a perfect block or shooting a perfect jump shot? Mm, I'd say block. Hi. So I, as because a, of the contact? Yes. Oh, there it is. <laughs> I am afraid of Sister Rita Claire. <laughs> There is no question. I played football, but I didn't like contact all that much. He was so, a quarterback. Well, there you go. Blind, blindside hits were my favorite on special teams. Ouch. My, wow. my uncle always said, in football, <laughs> there's going to be contact, so you might as well initiate it. All right, <laughs> I'm going to go to your sweeter side. Here. <laughs> uh, sister Rita Claire, the most challenging part of being a sister or a nun? Probably waking up early in the mornings and going right into prayer and, and just the schedule. Okay. Your, it's, your, your time is not your own. Hmm. Um, next question. I, I'm just I'm I'm pausing there because it feels like my life at times too, but certainly mm -hmm. not to the extent based on what you've described. So mm. uh, interesting. All right, you work with Florida State athletes. What's the best part about doing so? Just connecting that. I don't know. The athletes just have a natural connection, and so having that connection with people who I never thought in my life I would meet, um, and who would probably be turned off by me but as soon as we start talking sports they they get excited boom it's the global language isn't it mm -hmm. oh, cool. so in working with those athletes you are a person of prayer what is your most common prayer for them uh, just a, a spontaneous prayer over them that one can teach them how to pray, but to just inspire them through the Holy Spirit. So nothing nothing that I say personally, but just that the Holy Spirit gives me in the moment. I feel like we could have asked that one in the earlier section. That, that, that could get pretty deep. Absolutely. And that is, that's a good, a good answer, though. A good, uh, a Not pithy, very speed roundy is what you're saying. Yes, yeah. pithy answer. Here, here's the next one. Okay. Move, us, move us away from that. <laughs> I will. We're going pretty shallow dig, here. Dig shallow. Dig shallow. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Uh, your favorite statistic from your football career? Ooh, uh, I had I was MVP of, in the national championship game in two thousand five, and I think I had eleven touchdowns that year. Wow! wow. As a, a a fullback, is that what that's yeah, the position you played? So, yeah, so I got all wow. the short yardage ones. Yeah, and, uh, you um, punched it over the line, right? Mm -hmm. Someone's got to do it though. That's, yep. that's great. That's beautiful. Nice. Did you have a touchdown dance? Uh, we usually just uh, did a chest butt after every um, every touchdown and, and just kind of lifted each other up and hugged, and, which was something I had to learn I couldn't do at the convent. <laughs> like, you can't keep picking us up. You can't do that in the two-hand touch football game, not in the, in the, in the turkey bowl. That's, that's uh, illegal. Yeah. <laughs> Pick them up and celebrate. Bring in the high five. You've got to have all that in the convent. So yeah. The, so uh, for most of us, we've we have a vision of a nun because it's so horribly stereotyped. What are, what are the worst nun puns and stereotypes? And I promise not to make a habit of this. 
But, oh, but yeah, he the, be here all week. The rule, you know, the rule, are you going to hit me with your ruler? Um, or, uh, you know, most most older men come up to us and say, you know, I deserved everything those nuns did to us, and it made me a better man. There <laughs> it is. And then I usually kiss their hand and say, well, we're not like that anymore, and sorry for any times you got hit. <laughs> <laughs> Do you pretend every once in a while just to be tough like that, their image of a nun, or is that not uh, not fun? Um, I, I mean, I naturally am tough, so I, I don't have to pretend. <laughs> um, um, but it's more, it's a tough love, and the, and the students sense that and know that and can tell that, and so they're not afraid of me in that sense. Okay. Here's the next question. The term Hail Mary, is that an appropriate metaphor or desecration? It's, it's fine. <laughs> you mean for a football pass? Well, it, the, the term. The term, the way, in the way that we use it, the way that we think of it. Yeah, like oh, that was a hail mary. Right, yeah. right. In, in football, it's the it's the deep pass, yeah. right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. No, I think it's fine because um, uh, the history of it actually. Uh, I think the guy who threw that first one, he said he he prayed a hail mary that that whole time as the ball was in the air because that's how long it was in the air. And uh, um, yeah, she. She's the one that um, gave us Jesus, and so we uh, we know that she can always help us. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> last question, Sister Rita Claire. Last question. You, you've done great so far. Which is more important, athletes having more of God or God having more athletes? Mm. Well, God already has all the athletes. They just don't know it. <laughs> great so. answer. So wow. athletes having more of God. <laughs> Put Chad in his place on that. Good that answer. Was great. I don't even know you what that go back question and work on that meant. question. Yeah, I don't know where I, that's I going. I wrote it down. It sounded no, good. Beautiful. I, and I wrote it down. But so I, I have a last half question. Will the fellow sisters uh, be able to hear this podcast? As long as you send us the link, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, there you have I think it. We can do that. Yeah. We can do that. Yeah. So. We've arrived at the end, but I don't want to end. Thank you very much for spending some time with us here on this podcast, Dig Deep, Sport, Faith, Life. We've been so excited to get to know you, and we uh, will continue to kind of watch where you're headed, and we'd love to uh, connect again sometime. Sounds great. Very, very fun connecting with you, too. Love to talk sports. (laughs) This is great. Same here. Yeah, thank you very much. You're welcome. This has been uh, Dig Deep, the podcast about sport, faith, and life. Thanks for listening. We will be back with more exciting guests uh, in future episodes.